0: Well, what if you weren't attached? Like, what if it was just a spreadsheet? What if it was just another business in just another industry? How might you approach it? I think it's fascinating to take that thought experiment on seriously and then see what the delta is between where you're at and where you could be. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. We have a lot going on this week, including some news updates, one of our favorite business diagnostic questions, which is what would a PE firm do with your business? We're going to talk about that, as well as do a slightly deeper dive into our conversation last week about the brainstorming power of organization charts. I know it sounds crazy, but as the year ends, I think it's really interesting to try and visualize your company via an organizational chart or a souped up org chart. We're going to talk about that today. Also, we are hiring. I want to tell you at the top. We are currently hiring facilitators for our new community DC Black. DC Black features facilitated masterminds and in order to do that, we need badass facilitators. And I think this is a pretty sweet job. We ran it by some chief of staff, some CEOs, some COOs, and some business coaches. If you're in that category of people, you might be a good fit for what is a part-time job but a full-time connection to this incredible community and yes we are paying for your time to hang out with amazing people you can check out the job opportunity in the show notes or email ian directly ian at tropical mba and stick around to the end of the show i'll share with you a, one of my favorite new trends i've found and something i think could be a great business idea as well so let's roll the episode I'll start off the pod this week, Ian, with some news. Tragedy has struck our DC-Mexico event, or at least challenge, the day we opened up registration. Our contact at the resort was like, yo, this is going to be awkward. But someone just rented out all 314 rooms, and they're checking out the day your conference starts. How can you argue with somebody that's swiping the plastic on 314 five-star hotel rooms on the beach? That's serious cheddar. And you know what? Probably some business lessons to be had in there. It might even be better than lessons at our business conference. Why don't you go figure out who this incredible entrepreneur is who's able to afford 314 five-star resort rooms?
1: My guess Uh, is uh, some B-list celebrity's sister is getting married uh, (laughs) down at the resort. Maybe for the second time, perhaps. But uh, This is kind of
0: A-list money, man.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, we got the boot. We got the boot. Well, we didn't exactly get the boot. Basically, DCers like to come in early and they like to stay late. And it even said in our contract, we like to come early and we like to stay late. The problem is that the hotel didn't take us very seriously on that. And so they basically allowed another party to book over part of our room block. And so for us, although it wasn't during the conference itself, that's not going to work. Yeah, and this is the details, but
0: actually what the contract said was like reasonable, normal operations. And I'll tell you what's not reasonable and normal is booking out all the rooms in a five star resort of this variety. I mean, we just have not seen it in 10 years of doing events. It's kind of crazy. It's kind of interesting. I actually kind of am tempted to come early and just figure out what this person is up to. I could imagine it might go something like this like their speech would be like, um, I was struggling in entrepreneurship for many years. But then I found that the secret, to renting out 314 five-star resort rooms is finding small products that ship well, that lend themselves to repeat use. <laughs> I think, I don't know. I don't think it's Hollywood, man.
1: <laughs> this is also, by the way, what happens with your insurance, you know? It's like the act of God clause, and you're like, well, well who is your God? That's not my God. It's active kingpin God. clause. Yeah, active kingpin.
0: <laughs> anyway, we move the dates till May 6th, 7th, and 8th, Sometimes when you have these challenges with the clients, it's an opportunity to grow your relationship. So from our member side, they've been incredibly supportive. The emails have been amazing last week. Shout out to the DC members. Just like cool about it. And they understand like business is tough. Sometimes things don't go your way. And then the other side of it, I think our relationship with this new resort vendor has improved quite a bit. And jury's still out. We will see. But being able to war room with them, Really dig into like we're showing them all of our data from previous events. Like we are serious about what we're doing here. So we've improved our relationship with them. So win-win in the end. The event is now May 6th, 7th, and 8th. Already got 100 founders registered for DC Mexico. Super
1: cool. Really excited about that one. If you're listening to the pod and you're thinking about joining the DC, you should definitely join the DC and then come down to Mexico. This is the time. If you live in North America, especially, I'm bringing my family. I'm coming early. They're all hanging on the beach. I'm going to be in the conference room. They're going to be swimming. It's going to be perfect. Think about joining us down in Mexico this year as you're jumping off point into the DC.
0: I got so many interesting emails this week about it. One was from one of our oldest members, amazing entrepreneur who's been on the show before. He's like, I don't get it. Playa sucks. (laughs) And I was like, You know what? I want to respond to this publicly because I understand Playa del Carmen. I've heard it be called like a a cruise ship on the beach. You know, I think this framework of a UI and API actually is useful in this scenario because Playa del Carmen, if I'm going to go somewhere individually as an individual, or if I'm going to go down there as a couple, it's probably not the top of my list. But the moment my party gets to like six or eight or 10 or 12 people, I'm starting to think of Playa del Carmen as a really good option. And I think the reason is, is it may not be the coolest place to go hang out for six months, but it's a great place to go hang out with six people for six days because the logistics are so great. So another way of saying like the UI of Playa del Carmen is through the roof. Yeah. The API is pretty bad and that delta is huge. So like we're talking about a zero one two API and like an eight nine ten UI. So I think That's part of what I wanted to talk about is like, I can totally understand why someone would be like, why Playa del Carmen? It's not anything like Bangkok or Mexico City or Austin. But the reason is because of the logistics. It's such a great place to maximize the amount of quality time you spend with other people. And so that's why we selected Playa del Carmen. We'll see how it goes. So that's it. Stick around for updates to that. It's been a a super interesting week, but the coolest part is just seeing everybody's registrations come through and see who's coming down there. And we're planning a lot of big things for this Mexico event. So for better or for worse, it's going to be a big topic on the show in the coming months as we're sort of building a new thing and we're just super excited about it. Ian, it's getting closer to the year end. And one of the things that I've been compiling is diagnostic questions for a project that I'm working on. What are some of our favorite diagnostic questions? And one that I'd like to lay out here is one that we got from our good friend Noah Kagan and it goes like this what would a pe firm do with your business so again a diagnostic question is like if you want some clarity if you want to step away from the day to day and like take a look at the big picture what are some questions that help you do that and i really think this one is kind of interesting what would a private equity firm do with your business so first off what is a private equity firm i did a little internet deep dive on this it's super fascinating an enormous amount of the exits that happen in our community go to private equity firms. It's not people like individuals with SBA loans or wealthy people risking a bunch of their money on like some small internet business. It's not IPOs. It's not the public market coming in and taking over our stuff. It's, I don't know what percentage of times it's a PE firm coming in and taking these internet businesses off our hands. So I think it's kind of interesting to get to know who they are, what they do. The PE industry in America employs 12 million people. This is an enormous industry. How are so many people involved? It's because PE firms, they own hospitals, financial institutions. They're buying up newspapers. They're finding these niches, you know, and they're going and buying, 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 and then they're installing their teams. Super interesting trend. The PE industry has grown enormously since 2016. So not only are PE firms this big trend in culture, but they also have a specific way of doing business. So let me just read some stats on this. You're going to love this. How about this? When PE firms take over a nursing home, mortality rates jump by 10%, but profits go up. (laughs) (laughs) PE ownership of housing is associated with rising rents, higher rates of eviction, and worse quality. See, more profits. PE buyouts of private colleges lead to higher tuition and student debt, lower graduation rates and graduate earnings, and more law enforcement actions for fraud.
1: Let me guess, Uh, more
0: profits? (laughs) It's so, so fascinating. One of the things is that private equity firms do get fees from their investors to do this work. And so there's a big wealth transfer happening here as well. We're sort of grazing beyond the point. The point of the diagnostic question is that PE firms have reputations for being ruthless, for being unemotional, for making decisions based on spreadsheets, not history, making decisions based on the future, not the past. You know, a lot of small business owners might say things like, it's all about the people. The PE firms might say, it's all about the numbers or it's all about the people who can get you the numbers. This is why I like this diagnostic question. You know, if a PE firm took a look at your P&L and your asset, what would they have to say about it and what changes might they
1: make? It's a fun thought experiment and you don't have to take it to its logical end, right? I think people get offended by this idea that like PE firm is going to come in and just create a financial product out of their business. But that's essentially what they do, right? Is they create financial products. That's what they're in the business of doing.
0: Yeah. And to your point, like an amazing end game for a PE firm would be to catch the pass from the QB. So the founders, the QB, they throw the football, the PE firm catches it at like 10 million yeah, and then runs it up to 100 million and, and tries to get some kind of like resell public offering or whatever. So these PE firms are sort of like the shepherds from small business to big business.
1: So in that way, like I think these PE firms are like often willing to do what a lot of founders aren't willing to do. The founder is really good at taking it from zero to one. The PE firm doesn't take anything from zero to one. They take it from one to 10. And so the thought experiment is really like, okay, I've taken it from zero to one. Essentially, what does it mean to scale? What are we gonna have to do? And these are questions that we ask ourselves even inside of our business all the time, Dan. This is like, are we the right person to take this from one to 10? Do we have what it takes or are we like artists? Are we craftsmen? Do we really enjoy the zero to one?
0: I would focus on three areas of focus. Number one is people. So the PE firm coming in basically has no sense for who all the great things you did in the last couple of years. It's like, what are you going to do in the next couple of years? That's the first thing. So the right people. The second thing is just unit economics and like the basic product economics of your company. Digging into the spreadsheets and asking yourself, can we increase profitability? Where can we find more margin? That's fundamentally how you grow a business. Increase your margins, have more cash flow to reinvest back into business and to grow it. And then the final thing is oversight and accountability. So we've got people, unit economics, and then finally oversight and accountability. I think this is the idea that diagnostic, which is if you have this specter of a genius from the Ivy Leagues armed with spreadsheets and uh, no care in the world, but the future asset value or cash flow return on their investment, what kind of oversight would they give you as the operator? And I think finding some distance that, that delta between like what you want to do next year and what your business is capable of next year is a really interesting delta to grok, to take a look at, to understand. And that, to me, is the value of the PE firm diagnostic, so to speak. It's like a lot of founders, we literally have our, our soul in the game, our heart in the game. We're attached to our businesses. And I think the PE firm diagnostic question is basically like, well, what if you weren't attached? Like, yeah. What if it was just a spreadsheet? What if it was just another business in just another industry? How might you approach it? I think it's fascinating to take that thought experiment on seriously and then see what the delta is between where you're at and where you could be.
1: And the thought experiment actually doesn't need to be that cynical, right? This would be like the best of both worlds. What if you could financialize your business, but then also keep the passion in there? That would be the win-win, right? Is like, you keep your style, you keep your art, you keep your craftsmanship like ability to like create these cool products. And then you also create a really good financial model on top. I don't think that they need to like live independently of each other. I just think that like as small business owners, a lot of times we just veer like hard to the right because maybe it's our like default. But I think you can do both of these things at the same time. Totally agree.
0: Raise prices, cut staff what's it make art <laughs> yeah raise prices cut staff make art <laughs> exactly that's the, the boots <laughs> 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 that's funny just come up someone should come up with a course called the pe playbook and like just translate these lessons because this is like a new trend it's an interesting trend like the crossover between bootstrap founders and pe is ever greater how hot would a, a course that's like Lessons from the PE trenches. Bootstrappers would eat that up. We'd pay thousands of dollars to attend such a course and learn how to be badass spreadsheet wielding business buyers. All right, next topic. Ian, I did a nerdy deep dive this weekend on organizational charts. Could you think of a better way to spend a weekend? I cannot. I'm really nerding out on these charts, honestly, because uh, I see them as a brainstorm tool. We got a ton of feedback from last week's episode about how founders use org charts to visualize their organization, especially in a remote company. Like, what is your company? How do you take a look at it? A P&L is one abstraction full of data. PE firms might look at your P&L, for example. What about your org chart? How can we look at org charts as a way to visualize and empower us to make better decisions? Well, here's the visualization that you came up with after last week's episode. And I think of it like uh, christmas tree with all your own photos on it that was for some reason the first thing that i thought of <laughs> but like if you think about an org chart the founders at the top and then there's all these team members but really at the beginning it's just your name repeated throughout the t- it's like a bad christmas movie like i'm doing everything here you know i'm doing finance i'm doing operations i'm doing sales and marketing i'm you know and i'm horrible at all of it
1: it's uh, the latest like eddie murphy movie you know playing all the characters in the movie exactly (laughs) in the beginning you're the only person on the org chart that's just the way that it is and eventually you start getting tired of doing some of these jobs or maybe you're not the best at doing some of these jobs or maybe you want to work on the executive level functions of the organization you don't all have time to do some of these like coordinator or manager roles so what you got to do is you got to take out your eraser eraser in one hand wallet in the other your race You flip over the pencil, you write the name down, and then you take out your wallet and you pay for it. Yeah.
0: And one of the things about, we talked last week about having clarity around the different levels of your company on the org chart. So if you don't have a director, but you go ahead and hire a coordinator, leave that white space, right? Continue to, if it works for you, keep your name on the director and the manager levels. Because now you know that functionally, Hey, you're doing those roles. Even if you're not spending a lot of time on it, your budget coordinator who you just hired overseas definitely isn't contributing to these like managing executives or putting personnel plans in place or all the things that, say, a director would do. That's functionally something that you're doing very quickly. You're doing it intuitively. But hey, it's actually a thing that exists in businesses. It exists in yours. Just because it's not a big focus or that somebody doesn't work there right now doesn't mean that it's not a function in your business. So that's, Laying out this whole ideal organization, giving you space, and then starting to plug in those roles as they come along.
1: When you have these org charts and uh, you start writing other people's names down, I think the, the reason why we don't leave white space, as you're saying, for like a manager level or an executive level person in there is because we're capital constrained. Our bootstrap businesses are capital constrained. So what do we try and do? We go out and we try and get the best deal that we possibly can on someone. Yeah. Because it's going to leave so much stress and pain for us to just have anybody in that role. And so you get somebody in that role and then you start saying things like, well, now they're managing. Well, who are they managing? Well, nobody, but they're like managing the role, you know? Generally managing. They're generally managing things. I mean, we start making up these titles for them because it makes them feel good. This is a small organization. Maybe they came from a larger organization. They have a lot of autonomy and responsibility. And so you start throwing around these names and whatnot. The problem with all that is essentially like you still don't have a manager in that role necessarily, or you don't have an executive level person in that role necessarily. And you can't also pay for that level of person. So we've given the title to this person and they're not doing the role. We're not paying them for the role appropriately. And so what do you have? You have like a coordinator level person that you're calling a manager and then managerial or executive level functions aren't getting done.
0: Yeah. And I think it's totally fine to hire someone that you can afford. What's not fine is you not visualizing or understanding that that is what's happening in your company. That the person that you just got a good deal on from the other side of the world isn't actually aiding you in managerial, director, or executive level tasks. So just leave that space on your org chart. And that's empowering. That's the idea. So, hey, I've gone out and for X number of thousands of dollars a month, I've hired this coordinator they're responsible for meeting these specific KPIs. That's what you can expect from a coordinator. Now, someday, if I were to be able to afford a director who the market rate, by the way, is this, they would be in charge of these sorts of KPIs. You could potentially put a director in charge of revenue of a division, right? And requisitioning budget from the executive team to build up a team that would meet these ambitious goals. That's something a director could do. But just understand that until... You pony up and pay director kind of money. It's very unlikely that the person you brought in as a coordinator will be able to do those sorts of things in your company. Maybe they can, but it's just worth having a conversation around it. Here's the thing that happens. If you take a look at your Christmas tree with your name everywhere, is you can have something called a founder icicle. Stick with it. If you can imagine underneath the executive layer, you have your divisions and you have sales, marketing, operations, et cetera often in a small company the founder is so talented at one of these divisions sales is a common one that the name of the founder remains on that division and they start to hire around it okay i need a delivery team i need a you know a marketer to get more leads for my sales process etc and you start to hire around the founder's name and it's really important to note that this happens on org charts because it represents a big opportunity for scale which is that often as founders, we hire for things that we're not good at. Fair enough. But the problem, and this is the opportunity to thaw that founder icicle. Can you see the icicle? Can you see the name of the founder going down a division?
1: I'm imagining it. Okay. Often, the reason
0: the business has power in the marketplace and strategic positioning is precisely because of what that founder is doing. So it could be that the biggest lever is to take a look and melt that icicle and get a high-powered salesperson into that organization. There's a really common thing that happens on org charts is the founder is effectively doing a lot of expensive work to save the company money. But it yeah. could be an opportunity to double down on what built the company in the first place rather than spending all your money and other functions in the company.
1: Yeah, I was going to say too, when you create these uh, org charts you're welcome to like write numbers next to what the functions actually cost if you're going to totally. have to go out into the market. The org chart could essentially cost millions of dollars depending on the scale of your organization. Yeah. So as a founder, you're trading equity for income, right? So it's like, I'm going to do all these roles and I'm going to have all this equity. But really the real world value of replacing yourself in some of these roles is extremely high. And so this starts to get complicated, I think, in terms of margin and whatnot do you have enough margin in your product to be able to afford to like hire for all these functions? And so a lot of times, like you never get out of this cycle.
0: I know why. Because that's an executive level function and a lot of founders aren't performing executive level functions in their own company. They're able to effectively requisition funds from their clients, which is a director level skill set, director of sales. I can go to a client group and say, hey, for this product, I want this much money and bam. But what an executive can do is capitalize a strategy. And so it's very common the case that simply the founder doesn't have that executive level skill set yet. Maybe your name's not at the very top. And maybe it's time then to get an executive coach to replace yourself, etc. So I think it's an interesting challenge. If you can't thaw the icicle, and essentially what you've done is built yourself a really good job with a team around you to help you deliver this super profitable job, it's time to look into that executive level skill set, which is I think the big kind of theme on the show the past couple years for us is like, well, what does that look like when you get, to, okay, we founded a company, we've made money. Now, what does it look like to be an executive? And I think one of those key skill sets is capitalizing a strategy. One other thing, I think a common mistake that founders make is that, personally, I'll speak for myself, all I want is uh, chaos and idea and a uh, couple cups of coffee. And that, to me, is what's fun about coming to work is figuring out new problems, talking about ideas, figuring out ways to meet goals on incomplete information. Well, most team members, even the most talented professionals I've worked with, they don't really appreciate that as much as most founders I've met do. What they want is clarity around their lane, around their objectives, and some strong hypotheses about how they can meet those objectives. And I think one of the counterintuitive things is often we'll operate as executives or even board members will be like, we'll bring in coordinators or managers and like share the P&L and share the big vision and say, hey, the sky's the limit in this org chart. You can get the whole way to the top of the Christmas tree. And this is the sort of opportunity that we like, but not most professionals. And the other thing is I think the way you gain the skill set of operating in uncertainty is often by starting off with clarity. And getting your reps in by clearly delivering, by clearly meeting goals regularly, you see it in team members where they start to get a sense for the nuances, like of seeing through the uncertainty by having some guide rails to help them get there. I think the punchline for me, Ian, is that organizational charts represent an awesome opportunity to visualize your company and to brainstorm. And there's no rules here. You can do a person-based, you can do a function-based org chart, you can add a Z-axis with revenue and profit, you can add KPIs and scope under each particular salary level, you can put your name on every single role and pay yourself double. You can do whatever you want. And so I think organizational charts are a little bit under leveraged by founders and actually can be a ton of fun. Hey, if you like the show, just want to remind you, we have a website, tropicalmba.com. You can click through on your phone, check us out on the web, hit that subscribe button. I write the newsletter every week. There's a lot going on behind the seats of the pod. And that's the best way to find out about upcoming events, both virtual, in-person, and much more. Check us out at tropicalmba.com and give us some feedback on this brand spanking new website.
1: Because it's time for us spanking
0: one of the ways we come up with business ideas around here is a, a little bit of travel. And I come on the show all the time and regret missing the N.A. beer trend. Heineken Zero was the top title sponsor of F1 in Las Vegas. But uh, just like Richard Branson says, there's always another deal coming. They're like buses. But who wants to get the bus? I don't know. It, it, it's coming. Then the next it's not in coming. The
1: idea, it's in the execution, something like that. Something like that.
0: The execution deal, whatever. Here's the next big trend coming from Asia. Lit golf courses. We're already starting to see the beginnings of it in the West with brands like Top Golf. There's also companies that are creating brands out of mini golf and indoor training golf experiences. Golf had a big win in COVID. It was one way where you could hang out with other people, enjoy nature, do things in a third space with each other. Now, I have this wonderful tweet pulled up from a gentleman named Jared Duerfler, I think that's how you say it. He does a whole analysis on this. We'll, we'll link to it. But basically saying that searches for par three near me have gone up by 64% in the last few years. Par three course is like a graduation course. Once you're done with Top Golf and you're ready to actually get the ball under the grass, par three is like a smaller beginner way that you can enjoy uh, golf with a bunch of different people of different skill sets. Now, I think maybe in America, we haven't had lit golf courses because of regulatory things. Or maybe people don't see the opportunity, but I'm telling you, Ian, I've been abroad. It's an incredible way to spend your time after the workday with friends or family. It's a third space. It kicks the crap out of your other options at 8 p.m. on a Wednesday night, like board games, Dungeons and Dragons, bowling. None of these things even stack up. They'll come close to polishing off your sticks and getting out there in nature with your friends, with your loved ones. Uh, Can't beat it. Night golf, big opportunity.
1: Well, I think you just offended a lot of people, but you've also shared a new opportunity, which is a, a nice thing to do. But <laughs> I'll agree with you. Uh, I don't play golf, but I am always looking for more activities to do in the evening time that don't involve alcohol. I think in general, America is really bad at this, bad at providing public spaces, bad at providing things that you can do and participate in after 8 p.m. that don't involve drinking. So not to say golf doesn't involve drinking, but it doesn't have to, yeah. to be able to play golf. So I'm all for it. Yeah, pretty cool stuff. And I think this is genuinely
0: going to be a trend. And if you're saying, well, I don't know about golf course architecture. I don't have enough. I don't want to raise money or get involved as a capital partner in this stuff. Well, I do think when you look at stuff like this, there's a lot of adjacent opportunities. Things like consulting and publishing, helping this facilitate this trend along could be an opportunity. So pretty cool stuff there. I love to see it. Just personally, some of my best memories of living in Thailand We're going golfing after the workday with my friends. It's such a cool environment that you sort of get to have your cake and eat it too. Have your pad thai and eat it too, which is like you get a full workday, but then you get to go out and have this like adventure, physical experience, social experience at night. Pretty, pretty cool. All right. So a couple things here at the end of the episode, Ian, it's coming towards the end of the year. And uh, we talked about diagnostic questions earlier. One of the simple exercises we went through with our DC scale clients and with a lot of DC black members is simply three-year goal setting. So I thought we'd dig in a little bit and talk about what that can look like and how it can empower founders. And it's simply this, it's pretty easy to write down on a napkin and that's all that's required, a napkin or a small notebook, what your three-year revenue target is. But the fun all begins in how that translates down into daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly actions. So I'm wondering if you could just sort of give us some color on how this goes down in sessions. Ian, typically the way we're going to do a three-year goal setting is we're going to write down those three-year goals. Then, importantly, we are going to talk about the volume of product or services that need to ship in order to meet those goals. So now you're breaking down the revenue goal into units. And then you're asking yourself, well, how is that going to end up on each individual on my organizational chart, their scorecards? How is it going to end up on their desks so that they're contributing to this executive level three-year goal? Now, each individual player in the organization is doing something in the next 90 days that contributes to that.
1: As you know, we were just in New York with uh, DC Black members and we did this exercise. Everybody came with their deck. Fully filled out. It was what happened in 2023 and what they wanted to accomplish in 2024. And one of the comments that really stuck with me was like, I'm going to like set my target here, but I always kind of set my target and I don't actually know how to get there. Or like I just kind of stumble there or like I don't get there. So like I thought that was like a really interesting thing to say. And I think that we all do that to some degree, which is like you set a target and you don't know how you're going to get there. But for me, that's kind of like the fun part let's work backwards from like $5 million and like figure out what it would take in theory to get there. Figure out if we have the resources, figure out if we have the ideas, everything that it's going to take to get there. That's kind of the fun part is like that uncertainty. And I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, it is too. And then the rubber meets the road in January. And you're like, (laughs) am I actually going to do that? Or am I just going to keep plotting the course that I've been plotting in 2023? So people sat down with their plan for 2024 and their group members got to poke holes in that plan. Do you have the resources available? Can you do it? Well, you've never doubled year over year before. Why do you think you're going to double year over year now in 2024?
0: Yeah, I mean, the distinction of the three-year planning method that we designed is that it's really easy to write a number and that figuring out if that number realistically tracks with your quarterly goals and tracks to a person's desk who's responsible for the goal is held accountable. And by the way, the three-year number is you as the executive writing it down. So if you don't meet it, then you know who to hold accountable. So there you go. I agree that Delta is often quite large. All right, so final thing is, we both have talked a lot about personal finance spreadsheets. So while you're doing your three-year goals, might as well keep tracking with your personal financial spreadsheet. I posted mine, the template that's triangulated from yours, Ian, it's super, super simple. And it's simply this process on the final Friday of every month, you log into every single one of your bank accounts, every single one of your fancy other accounts, your loan accounts, whatever you got, and you dump it into a personal financial spreadsheet and you track with it once every month. It's so simple. It's impossible not to keep up with. And it keeps you out of a lot of the minutia that I think holds people back from taking a look at their personal finances. So recently got flagged up again in the DC forum. So I thought I would link to the template spreadsheet so listeners can use it as many members have.
1: One of the things I like to do in my uh, personal financial spreadsheet is I create tabs. I think most people did this too, but create tabs and it's like month over month, basically. So you get to like look back and link back to yes. see like if it's gone up or down. And you can create a little graph there. Yeah. And if you guys click through, you can see exactly
0: what Ian's talking about. At the bottom, I have a placeholder month. And then every Friday, I'll go in there and just hit copy to a new tab and I'll just redo it. That way you always have your old information. You can see your progression and then you can see this overview tab where if you want to be a fancy spreadsheet genius, you can actually track your trends on the overview. I personally haven't been doing that, but uh, if someone wants to create that and share it back with us, we will share it here on the podcast. Final piece here, Ian, is we got a holiday party tonight here in Austin, Texas. It's going to be a bunch of DC members. Put on your ugly sweater, bring your conversation cards. It's time to talk business.
1: That's right. We actually have printed conversation cards now. Yeah. I'm looking at them. we got a bunch of Dexa cards. So I'll be bringing those cards to our holiday party in Austin. I know that there's other holiday parties happening in Tokyo, LA, Edinburgh, London it's going to be a bash across the world.
0: You know, it's kind of funny and in principle of one of the things we've been saying internally in our team is kind of like improving what we do well already versus like doing new stuff or and it's you'd never think that DCers would need help with the conversation. You know, it's the last place you'd want to help cuz DCers just want to talk to each other cuz it's like nerd fest, right? Like, Full-time. oh my gosh, someone wants to talk about business with me. Let's do it. But yeah, anyway, conversation cards, kind of a cool little addition, but also a nice party gift.
1: Sometimes you need a segue, but yeah, that is true. Anytime DCers are in the same room, it's always like, turn down the music, Yeah, stay quiet. We're trying to have a conversation here, man. Any other group, it's like, turn up the music. I really don't want to be in this situation. I need three more drinks.
0: (laughs) All right, boss, man, let's do it. That's it for the podcast this week. We'll see you next Thursday morning.